Well, today we're going to be looking at Psalm 73, and this particular psalm is very helpful. It it addresses one of life's most difficult problems. In fact, I would dare say each one of us have probably thought about the same thing that the psalmist here, Asaph, has thought about. Here's the problem. How is it that the wicked so often prosper while godly people seem to suffer? And have you had that same difficulty that Asaph had? I'm curious. Why is it wicked people seem to prosper while godly people seem to suffer? Well, that's the the thing that Asaph is addressing here in Psalm 73. It is the dilemma of what you might call a myopic faith. I don't know if you know what myopathy is, but believe it or not, I have myopia however you say that, myopia. I have it. Now, when I went to my eye doctor, he always seemed to call it nearsightedness. Uh, It's basically a visual problem that keeps people from seeing objects that are far away. So, so like, for example, if if I'm not wearing eyeglasses or contact lenses, you know, I can see stuff like this close, but I can't see stuff on the other side of the room. Uh, I'm virtually blind when it comes to those kind of distances. So it's often called nearsightedness. You can see in the illustration on the screen here, uh, basically what happens is, I won't get into all the technical things, but basically uh, your eye's out of focus, all right? That's about as easy as I can make it, all right? So, so like when I take my contact lenses, you're just, you're just all a blur to me, all right? You know, I can't really even see your faces. I can't see your eyes, facial expressions, uh, not much of anything. I can see variations in light, shadows. That, that's about it. So that's, that's what myopia is. So you can see only what's immediately before you if, if you're nearsighted. Uh, so without glasses or contact lenses, you can't see where, where you're really going. And so it's a disaster if, you know, the contact lens pops out of your eye. That's just a disaster. <laughs> or, or when I used to play basketball, which is supposed to be a non-contact sport, it always seemed the elbows ended up hitting me in the face, right? So my, my glasses would go flying across the floor, which is always embarrassing, right? So how are you supposed to play basketball when, when, you're, when you need glasses and they've just broken? You can't. It's impossible. And so... The person with this problem can only see what's immediately under his nose, so to speak. Well, that's kind of the idea. You say, why am I even using that illustration? Well, that's kind of the idea that Asaph is going through here. He has spiritual myopia. And and that's a problem. When you can only see what's under your spiritual nose, then you're going to end up with problems. Uh, and, and so for, for Asaph here, he's, he's only looking at the temporal, the physical, the, the earthly. In other words, he can only see the here and the now. And he doesn't have God's perspective on things. And as a result of that, he found himself in his life having a noisy soul. Well, let me illustrate it uh, this way, okay, in case you're not getting the illustration of myopia. I don't know if have, have you, any of you ever done a corn maze? Uh, I I did one with my family here in the Waikato. Heidi's done it. Uh, you you go through the corn maze and, and often they're very elaborate. They're fun, 
challenging things to do, but if you've ever done one, especially when the, the corn is way over your head, it's easy to get lost and confused when you're in the midst of the labyrinth. And the, the one that, uh, that my family did actually had a bridge in the middle, uh, well, somewhere in the middle, and it was very helpful to, when you get lost in the corn maze, to go to the bridge, climb up on the bridge like these people do in the picture here. So you, you climb up on the bridge, and then you can sort of see the lay of the land and where the labyrinth is going, and you're like, oh, okay, well, I came in over there, and, I'm, and the exit's way over here, so, okay. So you kind of get an idea where you need to go. So it was always helpful when you're in, in that confusion and you're lost. I found it helpful to look up. Look, look at the big tall trees. Look, oh, there was a hill over there. And so you, you're, when you're looking at individual pieces of corn, you, just, you really don't know where you are. And so what you had to do is you had to find something outside the labyrinth as a landmark to help you get out. And so, so having something like that's helpful. It gives you a different perspective that can help you get out of your confusion and your lostness. So the proper perspective is very important because those mazes are often very complex and, and can be misleading on purpose. You'll look at this, the, the next screen here, for example. Uh, they, they make very ornate labyrinths in these corn mazes. And you're, you're walking around there, and you often end up in these dead ends, and, and you're not sure where to go. And, and there's, there's another one here that was done in Minnesota. Even had, um, You can even see they have little pieces of corn in the tractor. And very ornate. Easy to get lost because they're very complex, and they purposely mislead you. And they can be fun. Because you, you really know that, hey, if you get lost, often what they do is... Uh, they give you a flag and they say, if you're lost and you really can't find your way out, just raise the flag up and we'll come and get you, right? But often in, in real life, we don't feel like we can raise the flag and, and sometimes we don't feel like somebody's going to come and get us and help us get out of the lostness. Well, Asaph, the human author of Psalm 73, suffered a very severe bout of myopic faith. His vision was blurry. He couldn't see things from a distance. And this was a gifted man, by the way. He was an outstanding musician who lived at the time of David. Uh, he was an appointed minister of music in the temple. He was a leader of, of the Levitical choir. In fact, you'll see his name mentioned in the title right next to Psalm 73. And so this particular psalm is written during a time when he took his eyes off God, off the Lord, and he focused on the prosperity of the wicked. And that look caused him to struggle, and it caused him to lose sight of, of what was eternal, because instead of looking at God, who is eternal, he's looking at the temporary, and, and he's giving his full attention to the temporal. Which leads me to my theme for you today, and it's this. You cannot see the eternal while your focus is on the temporal. You cannot see the eternal while your focus is on the temporal. I believe that's the lesson that God wants us to learn from Psalm 73. 
So let's see what this human author, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has to say. Well, he has a disturbing problem that he mentions in these first few verses. So let's read verses 1 through 3. Psalm 73, 1 through 3. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Do you see his problem? It's a very disturbing problem. And it's interesting that in the very first verse, Asaph is showing his confidence here in God's goodness. And you say, well, why is he doing that? Well, basically, you need to understand this. Asaph's starting with his conclusion. See, he's not writing in the midst of his, his myopic faith. He's come through. He's come out the other side. And verse 1 is his conclusion. He's saying that God is good to those who are pure in heart. So he's affirming the goodness of God who is constantly good to his people. And this, by the way, is one of the most fundamental truths about God. That God is always good. A key word there, by the way, is always. This is something you must believe. God is always good. Always. But then when you come to verse 2, Asaph starts talking about this very disturbing problem that he had. He had. Notice uh, the very first word in verse 2 starts with a but. Showing this contrast. Asaph was confused about God's goodness, at least at one point in his life. He's confused. And so he confessed he had come close to abandoning this confidence in God's goodness. You'll see it in that phrase there in verse 2. But as for me, that's Asaph's way of basically confessing his problem, his error, his bad way of thinking. And, and, but then when he says, my steps had nearly slipped, he means he'd nearly turned aside from the right way. By his own admission, he had nearly lost his foothold. He could have suffered a fall in his spiritual life. He almost did, and he admits it. Well, what caused that to happen? What, what caused him to be confused about God's goodness? Asaph fought, uh, allowed his focus to shift off God, the eternal. That's what caused it. It caused him to doubt God. His question ends up becoming this. Why should people who disregard God be the recipients of His goodness more than those who trust Him? That's what he, that's what he was thinking. And that's Asaph's disturbing problem here. That's what he's thinking. I'm not saying that's accurate. So we've got to ask the question, well, is Asaph accurate in that way of thinking? And and the answer is no, because he had a distorted perspective. Just like someone who is nearsighted, their vision is distorted, blurry. They're not seeing accurately. And that's Asaph's issue here. So, in verses 4 to 12, we see the distorted perspective that Asaph had. In these verses, he's recalling his envious thoughts that ended up producing this poor outlook on life. So let's take a look at his envious thoughts. 
and you can judge for yourself whether or not these are an accurate view. Look at verse 4. Now, he's talking about the wicked here in verse 4, and he says, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Now, as you read through, through the verses 4 to 12, you've you got to ask yourself, this is Asaph's way of thinking, okay? But is it God's way of thinking? Okay, the two don't always match up here. All right, so Asaph's recalling his envious thoughts that he had of the wicked, the ungodly, the unsaved, and, and those thoughts ended up causing him to have this poor outlook on life. So let's just kind of quickly go through basically what he's thinking here. Number one, he says the wicked are always healthy. The wicked are always healthy. Now remember, this is his perspective. But is that true? Honestly, is there ever a person on planet Earth who is always healthy? I mean, he says things like in verse 4, they, they have strong bodies. In verse 5, he says, they have no burdens. Come on. There is no one like that. (laughs) Even Jesus had issues when he lived on earth. Okay, There's nobody who's like that. So Asaph's describing the troubling contradiction he saw around him. He's not viewing life correctly. He's not looking at these people correctly. So he saw the prosperity or the seeming prosperity of the wicked who seemingly had no struggles. And of course, they did have problems. Everybody has problems. But those problems were hidden from Asaph's eyes. For, for whatever reason, Asaph couldn't see the other people's problems. And so as a result, he started to develop envy, which grew into self-pity, which leads me to a life lesson that we need to learn. You need to meditate on truth to avoid a noisy soul. See, Asaph developed a noisy soul. How did he get there? It's because he had the wrong perspective. He wasn't meditating on truth. He wasn't meditating on the right content. He's meditating on the wrong stuff. That's how he ended up with a noisy soul. Because he's thinking, well, the wicked, they're always healthy and I'm not they got strong bodies and I don't, and they don't, they don't seem to have any burdens and I got heaps, right? And by the way, you look at some of the stuff here and you, you might think, whoa, fat bodies and, you know, that, that doesn't sound good. Well, in their time, that was, you know, that, that was a seemingly good thing, okay? All right? Uh, 
So you might have a little bit of a cultural barrier going on there. But anyway, so that's the first one that he mentions, that the wicked are always healthy. And then the next distorted perspective he mentions is number two, that the wicked are always proud. That's his view. They're always proud. Like in verse 6, he says, they have conceited hearts, cruel hands. They, uh, they're callous, <laughs> according to verse 7. These people are overindulgent. When you read verse 7, you see this idea their eyes swell out through fatness. <laughs> right? That's somebody who is overindulgent. <laughs> uh, but they're also careless. Because the end of verse 7 says their hearts are overflowing with follies. They're full of follies. But their mouths are speaking horrible things as well. You read on verses 8 through 11. So, yeah, they they come across as proud. And it's because they are proud. They are proud. And then in verse 12, Asaph's distorted perspective is that the wicked are always happy. Really? (laughs) Always happy? Because he says they're always at ease. They increase in riches. Well, that's only part of the perspective. That's only part of the picture. And so this is the psalmist's summary of all the previous verses, if you will. And although his view is, of course, grossly distorted and exaggerated, that's how Asaph was seeing it. So again, there's an important life lesson to be learned here. Envious thoughts are produced by a poor outlook. See, when you're struggling with envy, it's because you're looking at the temporal instead of the eternal. So when you take your eyes off God and what's eternal and start looking at things around you, you're going to have a problem with envy. So a wrong perspective can then cause you to spiral downward. right? When you start meditating on the wrong things and things that aren't true, it, it, it can keep you going down. And, and for some people, it eventually leads to suicide. That's what ends, ends up happening. But look what happens next. So you, you'll see this downward spiral because he's got the wrong perspective here. He, then, he, then, then life even gets worse. So look at his debilitating pain. Asaph had debilitating pain. Starting in verse 13, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean. And washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Just stop there for a moment. So I've just kind of picked some things out of verses 13 through 16. You see in verse 13, he says, I kept my heart clean. That's what he he thought. So it's hard when you're trying to do right. And and that's basically what he's saying. Hey, I'm trying to do right. I'm trying to to please God with my life. But, you know, I, I seem to have it worse off than all those wicked, unsaved people out there who are just ignoring God worshiping idols and whatever else they're doing, but yet they seem to have it better than me. 
That's not fair. <laughs> I kept my heart clean, as he says in verse 3. And he says it's just in vain. I've done it in vain. It's empty. It's worthless. What's the point? And then in verse 14, he says, well, I've been stricken. I've been stricken. For all the day long, he says, I've been stricken. It's just, it's endless. And in verse 15, he says, I withheld my words, which is probably a wise thing to do. Sometimes it is. And in verse 16, he says, I suffered much oppression. So what's Asaph doing here? He's basically wallowing in self-pity. You know, you, you ever, it's like a big fat pig. You ever seen a big fat pig? He goes in, into the mud, mud puddle. He finds this beautiful cold mud puddle, and he just lays down, rolls on his back, and enjoys the mud puddle. Yeah, that, that's basically what Asaph's doing here, but it's, it's self-pity. He's wallowing in self-pity. And it seemed to do him no good to follow God. It, it's no good to obey God and his word. What's, I mean, so, so what, what good was it to remain pure? He says all day long he's feeling plague for doing the right thing. Why remain loyal to God if, if this is the reward you get? Well, when you look at verse 15, Asaph's, <laughs> it's interesting. He, just, he says, I will speak thus. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So Asaph's thoughts, if they had been expressed, he says, would have been a stumbling block to the other people of Israel in his congregation. He simply could not understand everything that's going on. And so it remained a mystery why God seemed to prosper the wicked and, and then punish righteous people. And you and I probably have felt this way at some point in our life. And it was an oppressive source of inner conflict for him that caused him much heaviness of heart. Well, you might ask, well, okay, he's... He, deep in his mind and his heart, he's gone into a very deep hole. He's gone down this, this spiral. Things just seem to be getting worse. So how did he get out of this hole? He, he's dug a pretty deep hole here. How did, how did he get out? And, and how he gets out, by the way, is the same way you and I can get out of these deep holes. So in verses 17 through 20, he's, he's gaining new insight this, he has this dawning perception. Look at verse 17. Until I went in the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. Though that, he's referring to the wicked. I discerned the wicked's end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Wow. So here he is. He's in the midst of his spiritual crash. But something changed the psalmist. <clears throat> excuse me. Something changed the psalmist's outlook on life. What was it? Well, he mentions a few things here. His negative thinking has, has overwhelmed him. But now he's come to this turning point. Verse, uh, verse 17 is kind of like a hinge, if you will. This turning point in the psalm. 
He has an eye-opening experience. Notice, according to verse 17, he says, here it is. Here's the starting point of change. He entered God's sanctuary. He entered God's sanctuary. Now that's interesting, because remember, Asaph is a minister of music. He's been going into God's temple. And so here's a guy who's ministered in the house of God, and now he's confronted with an eternal perspective. And the eternal perspective takes his eyes off the temporal. Well, how did that happen? Well, he must have had an encounter with God's Word. And it's through God's Word that he encountered the eternal. And it corrected his thinking. Well, then when his his thinking started to get corrected, notice as we read on here, see what happens next, is he saw the wicked's final destiny. He saw their final and ultimate destiny. So because of divine truth, he saw what ultimately is going to happen to all unbelievers. God's going to deal with them. Ultimately, unbelievers end up in the lake of fire. And you can see in verse 18 that Asaph was now gripped with God's perspective because he wasn't seeing God's perspective, was he? So the final destruction of the wicked he sees is sure, it's if something's going to happen, yeah, it might seem like they, that God is blessing them in some ways now, but in the end, for all eternity, they're not going to have it very good. So suddenly, when they least expect it, they're going to be destroyed. They would be swept away by terrors, he says. They'd suffer a dreadful death. It leads to everlasting punishment. And by the way, notice according to verse 20, who is doing this work? Asaph says God is. God's the one who who blesses them. As as the Bible says, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. But ultimately, God's going to arise as if if he's been sleeping, he says, and then he's going to remove the ungodly. And by the way, as as we come to the end of this chapter, I want you to notice something, that an eternal perspective leads to praise. An eternal perspective leads to praise. And, and in verses 21 to 28, we see Asaph just, just come out of this darkness, out of his hole, and he has a dynamic praise. And he starts by admitting his self-focus. You, you see, to come out of the hole, to come out of darkness, you, you have to admit your problem. Look what he does in verse 21 and 22. He admits his self-focus. He says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Now he's talking to God. When he says, I was a beast toward you, God. Like a beast. So Asaph's inner pain here was the result of the envy that had sprung up in his embittered spirit. And so as a result, he says, notice what he says, I was brutish, I was ignorant. In other words, I was without any spiritual discernment. I was without understanding. And so, because he had the wrong perspective. So he ends up comparing himself to a wild animal here when he admits to God, I was like a beast toward you, God. That basically means he's not thinking clearly. I'm not thinking clearly. I'm like a wild beast. 
not in my right mind. Well, what's the solution? Well, in verses 23 through all the way through 28, the solution is focus on God, focus on the eternal. And, and Asaph gives five reasons why you should focus on God. Five. All right? Take note of all five of these. Uh, in verse 23, he says that God holds me. God holds me. He says in verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. So Asaph attributed the restoration of his spiritual insight, or his spiritual sights, if you will, to the faithfulness of God who had always been with him. God hadn't left him. He'd just taken his eyes off God. God would never let go of him. Even though he may have drifted away from God, even though he had entered into the spiritual apathy, God had never let go. God was holding onto his hand, and that made all the difference. Well, somebody in our congregation showed me, in addition to that poem I read to you a couple weeks ago, the Footprints in the Sand poem, this comes from adam4d.com. Here's the addition. So you know how Footprints in the Sand poem goes. Well, here's how it ends, according to this guy. He says, I woke up and I thought to myself, what a silly dream. There has only ever been one set of footprints because God has carried me the entire way. And if he ever put me down, like even for a minute... I'd probably flop over and drown in the shallow surf or choke to death trying to eat sand like a completely helpless fool. So I said to the Lord, please don't let me have that nightmare again. I hope you can appreciate that. He is being a little sarcastic, I think, but the sarcasm is supposed to prove a point. We need God to hold us. Heaven forbid that God should ever let go of us. That would be a nightmare. (laughs) That is a nightmare. Praise God, he says he never will. You read John chapter 6, John 10. There's beautiful truths there, being in God's hand. Nothing can ever take you out of his hand. Nothing. It's permanent. It's eternal. So God holds me, and and that's that's something that we ought to focus on. But notice the... The second thing Asaph brings up that should be encouraging is that God guides me. God guides me. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. So he received guidance from God's word. That enabled him to overcome his foolishness. How did he overcome that? Notice it's with healthy counsel. Sound, healthy counsel. So in spite of his period of unfaithfulness, despite of his, uh, his darkness he had entered, he remained confident in God's loving kindness. He was confident that God was guiding him. And number three, God captivates me. God captivates me, according to verse 25. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Nothing. Totally captivated by God. Now now he's finally speaking with the right perspective. And Asaph's asking this question here, 
Whom have I in heaven but you? What's the answer? It's a rhetorical question, which implies a negative answer. And the answer is no one but God could help him. No one. Nobody but God. And so Asaph's desiring nothing but God. God is his primary passion. The fourth reason that Asaph gives here as he's focusing on God is he says that God strengthens me. God strengthens me. Look at verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so when Asaph says here, my flesh and my heart fail, he's referring to, the idea is this, whole being is failing. His whole being. And the good news is found, by the way, in the last part of verse 26 there, where he says, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In other words, he's saying that God is the total sum of his inheritance. God's everything. And notice how long this lasts. He says it's forever. So praise the Lord, because He is the sustainer of our lives. The last one, number five, Asaph mentions, is that God protects me. He protects me. Look at verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Wow. What a way to end. He's saying God protects me. And so Asaph's concluding here that the unfaithful people who were far from God are going to perish in this life. And, and by the way, as well as forever. It's not just a temporary thing. But as for me, he says it's good to be near God. And this was the only vantage point that provided the right perspective on life. It's a bit like climbing up on that bridge when you're in the corn maze. You you need to get up out of it to to get the right perspective. So you're no longer lost. (laughs) And so this is the right perspective, to focus on God, not on people. Not on the temporal. Which again leads me to our theme You cannot see the eternal while your focus is on the temporal. So what's the solution for a myopic faith? What's the solution for spiritual nearsightedness? Well, I've always found Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2 helpful. Look at this. Hebrews 12 says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Notice there's something you must put off, and you must always replace it. It's not good enough to just put something off. The Bible always teaches us the principle of replacement. So, So we put off this weight, this sin, and the only way you can run the life this, this, with endurance is to look to Jesus. He's eternal. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let me just give you some practical things to walk away with today. Number one, we must 
look away from the charms of this world. The charms of this world are deceiving. Oh yeah, they, they, might, they might bring some pleasure for a season. Even the book of Hebrews talks about that. Sin is pleasurable, but only for a season. So we've got to look away from those charms. Don't be deceived by those charms. And number two, focus on the glories of Christ. Fix your eyes on God, who is eternal, unchanging. Why? Well, God's the one who gives you the proper outlook on life and helps you to see eternity. And I've always found it helpful to meditate on the stabling or the stabilizing truths to avoid a noisy soul. Those of you who've gone through Jim Berg's program, Quieting a Noisy Soul, will be familiar with these. Some of you have even, I've even printed these out and given them to you. So if you want a uh, printed copy, I'm happy to do so. Uh, they, I, I've actually got one sitting on my desk. And here they are. The two main truths are this, that God is always good and God is always great. And underneath those two main truths of, of who God is comes many things, but here's, here's the ones I have sitting on my desk. God's always good. So what does that look like? It means that He's doing something good in my life. According to Romans 8, everything is going to work together for good to those who love God. If you're called according to His purpose, God is always doing something good in your life. And number two, He's meeting my genuine needs. So according to Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't worry. Hey, I'm taking care of all of my creation, including you. And then He always forgives my sin. Praise God, He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Number four, He loves me personally. Love that passage in Romans 8. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing. Not even death. Not the devil. You can't even do it. Nothing can separate you from God's love. And then last, He gives me the grace I need. God's grace is truly sufficient. So those are some just some wonderful truths to meditate on that show you that God is always good. Well, what about this truth that God is always great? Here's some stabilizing truths for you. Number one, He's in control. In other words, God's sovereign. In other words, God reigns supreme over all of His creation. There is not one rogue molecule in this universe that is going to mess up God's day. God never is up in heaven saying, wow, I didn't see that one coming. That never happens to God. <laughs> he, he is in total control. Read Psalm 103. And, and Psalm 139 is beautiful because it shows that God is present with me, and He's always present because He's everywhere. Even if I make my bed in hell, God is there. Even there. And then according to Hebrews 1, God is always the same. Always. He doesn't change. He is trustworthy. Totally trustworthy. Totally reliable. God says He's going to do something. You can count on it. Unlike us, you know, we say we're going to do something. Sometimes you wonder about people, don't you? I'm going to be here at such and such a time. You, know, you don't know about people, do you? But God's not like that. 
And we also see, according to Romans 11, that God is wise. So those are just some things. It's not exhaustive. Some things that show us that God is always great. And the reason I put it on my desk is because I struggle with a noisy soul, just like you do. But you know what? Getting the right perspective protects me from that. i got to see the truth. Constantly meditate on the truth. Like things like these stabilizing truths to protect me from having a noisy soul. And it makes all the difference. And you say, well, why meditate on these truths? Because of this. This is something I learned from Jim Berg in Quieting Noisy Soul. Unbelief can lead me into despair. And then, and you can be depressed. And of course, then I'm not glorifying God because I'm not trusting in God. I'm not seeing His goodness and His greatness. And, and here's the path that I found really helpful from Quieting Noisy Soul. It's, it's the, the way down, if you will. Notice the way down starts with unbelief. It's the same thing you see with the psalmist. Unbelief caused him to spiral downward. Unbelief is basically saying that God is not good, God's not great, or, or at least saying God's not good enough for me. He's not great enough for me. Now, you might believe God is great, but at some point in your life, you start, you start doubting. And that unbelief starts you down, down a, a very dark path, which then leads you to discontentment. And discontentment is basically, you're not content, you're, you have this lust, this desire for more, because God's not enough. And we start saying things like, I don't like, or that's not fair. You know, basically, Asaph saying, you know, God, this isn't fair, I don't like, you're, you're blessing, you're being good to those people over there, but I'm not seeing to get enough of your blessing. Yeah, I seem to have it worse than them. I'm trying to do the right thing. Come on, bless me. I deserve it. I'm a good guy. Right? I don't like this. So it leads to discontentment and leads to, you can go down two paths to either anxiety or anger. So anxiety is where you start worrying, you're fretting like the psalmist does in chapter 37. Or then you can become quite angry. You get angry at God, at people. You just blow up at everything. And if you keep going down that downward spiral, it eventually leads you to despair and depression where you have this emotion of helplessness. It, it, you, you feel like there's no way out. What's the point? And, 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 of course, the worst case scenario is there's no point in living, so I'm just going to commit suicide. And people say, well, I'll never get what I need. I'll never get what I need. That's hopelessness. It's despair. What, what gets you to that point? You need to be aware of this so you, you don't end up at the bottom of the spiral. What got you there to start with? It was unbelief. The unbelief. Having the wrong perspective. You're not seeing truth. You're not seeing the eternal. You're looking at the temporal. Which brings up our theme again. You cannot see the eternal why your focus is on the temporal. So what do you need to do? It's simple, isn't it? Focus on the eternal. What's eternal? God's eternal. God said His Word is eternal. 
How are you going to see God? You need to read, study, meditate, memorize His Word. That's how you're going to see God. That's how you're going to see the eternal. And one day, as believers, I'm looking forward to the day when I am separated from the shell of a physical body, I'm going to see the eternal face to face. I'm going to see Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be made like Him. But for the moment, I'm going to, I'm going to struggle. And we're going to struggle. Because we live in the temporal. Everything around us is temporal. Your body's temporal. And so you're going to struggle. And so the only solution is we've got to keep looking to the eternal. Recognize, well, this, there, there's more to life than this. There's something bigger and more transcendent, more beautiful, better. We've got to keep looking at that. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. May God give us the grace to do that. Let's pray.